The last eight days, I've started teaching Michael Kid Gilchrist the art of shooting. Going to change the entire shot. You are locked on fantasy basketball. Your daily podcast on fantasy basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball, Instagram at RedRock underscore B-Ball, and Facebook.com slash RedRockBasketball. We are back with another of the season in review shows, the second for today. We earlier did the New Orleans Pelicans, so if you are seeing this in your uh, podcast feed and you haven't seen the Pelicans one that was released a couple of hours ago, so go back and check that that will be there as well. Just some extra content to while away the hours while we're waiting for these NBA finals to start. So we're going to be talking about the Charlotte Hornets in today's podcast. So let's get to it. To it. Let's get to it indeed. The Hornets are a team that, um, I guess, disappointed this year. I think that's fair to say. They ended the season with a 36-46 and 46 record, which underperformed their point differential by six wins, which is a significant amount. A team that I thought had a real chance to, or not a real chance, I thought they would be a playoff team and could actually push for a uh, maybe a top six spot, maybe a top five spot. Clearly underperformed that. Should have been a playoff team, I think. Um, the absence of Cody Zeller in the middle of the season was a massive, massive reason uh, for their fall and their massive drop-off that they, they suffered this year to last year. They are a team that's also a little bit stuck in the middle. There's not great young talent coming through. The players they've got have sort of uh, hit their ceiling. So being able to, to move past this is going to be tough. Steve Clifford's obviously an excellent coach and can get lots out of this team and is able to will them to maybe an eight or seven seed spot next year. But the the upside from them um, is not that high. The ceiling is, is the roof. And um, you know, getting better from here is not going to be an easy task for the Charlotte Hornets. In the upcoming NBA draft, they do have pick 11, and they also have pick 41, so both of their own picks in the draft. At pick 11, where they go, yeah, look, they've got needs at lots of positions. Backup point guard, what they had there was not ideal. Backup wings, although Marco Bellinelli and Jeremy Lamb do a pretty decent job in that spot. For this team, backup big men. Do they look for another backup center? Miles Plumley was uh, horrendous there, and most likely you're going to see them go for a guy like a Zach Collins at pick 11. I think that would be a, a decent spot. Although Frank Kaminsky showed you know, he can do some stuff fantasy-wise, at least when he plays center, his on-court performance in terms of overall helping the team win was not ideal in that spot. So maybe they look for a guy like Zach Collins uh, to, to play there behind Cody Zeller. But getting getting depth at other positions, your yeah, wing depth at uh, Donovan Mitchell, perhaps. Uh, whether you're looking at, at a guy, uh, if a point guard slips, you're getting someone there to back up Kemba, who's you know, getting, he's not old, but he, he's getting up there in age uh, as well. He's um, he's 26 at the moment and had uh, a knee surgery once again, which uh, continually seems to happen for him over the offseason. season doesn't really impact him in year, but that is becoming a concern for a smaller point guard with, with knee problems. So if one of those guys slips, they can take them. But I think at this point, you're looking at a guy like a, like a Zach Collins, Perhaps at that selection, uh, if if he happens to slide to a pick eleven, which I I imagine that that he will, he will move down to that uh, that selection. In terms of upcoming free agents, Ramon Sessions has a six point three million dollar player option. He was not good for this team this year. Whether he picks that up or not, where we don't know at the moment. Um, I I think that he probably will. I can't see him getting huge deals above that. Maybe he might decline it, hope, hoping to get a two- or three-year deal. But he was a free agent last year and was only able to get the one-plus-one, a two-year 12 million, one-plus-one deal. So it's not like that there was, with more cap space available last season, there was huge uh, demand for his services. So he might actually opt in for that $6.3 million. Brian Roberts is an unrestricted free agent. And then they've got, uh, or sorry, Trevion Graham's got a $1.3 million team option. He was uh, he was okay at times. I'd imagine they'd pick that up. Then they've got three blokes with non-guaranteed deals for next season. Uh, Christian Wood at $1.4 million. Johnny O'Brien at 1.5 million and Briante Weber at 1.5 million. The only one of those guys that I'd want to pick up is Briante Weber. I'd be more than happy cutting Wood and O'Brien. Although I do like Christian Wood, he just never seems to be able to uh, get it together. 
and a lot of concerns with his uh, you know, off the court and immaturity issues and just never seems to be able to uh, put that talent uh, together. So I'm not really sure that yes, saving or, or you're guaranteeing that $1.4 million is going to be the best bet for this team. They were basically smack bang in the middle for offensive rating and defensive rating, 14th in both. And I think that's a great illustration of what this team actually is, just just stuck in the middle. They were first in turnover percentage, so they take care of the ball. It's a real uh, part of what Kemba Walker does, super low turnover guy, and part of what Steve Clifford does as a coach. They were second in defensive rebounding percentage and 27th in offensive rebounding percentage, obviously much bigger focus on the defensive glass. Offensive ratings for this team, the highest was Trevion Graham, obviously in limited minutes, Cody Zeller, next Kemba Walker, and then Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, which is a bit of a surprise to see Kidd-Gilchrist that high up in anything relating to offense. Defensive rating, Christian Wood, again, very limited minutes there for Woody, Kidd-Gilchrist, Plumley, and Zeller. The uh the duo the, the the big the big white center duo of Plumley and Zeller they had five guys shoot forty percent on corner threes Kemba Walker Brian Roberts Trevion Graham Marco Bellinelli and Ramon Sessions all small guys while Batum was a disappointing thirty three percent on his corner threes something that obviously he would like to improve and the team would like him to improve as well. The other thing that really stood out to me when looking at shooting splits is Jeremy Lamb was able to finish at 70% at the rim. He is a guy that is a confounding prospect at times. Steve Clifford gets um, publicly annoyed with him. We've seen maybe not as much this season, more the year before. But when he is in there and playing 25 minutes a game, he produces almost invariably. The problem is, is his his lapses in concentration really limit what Clifford likes to do with him. Now, whether he can elevate himself above Marco Bellinelli next season... I think it's a real possibility because he, I think he can offer more to this team. He's a a strong rebounder as well, but he's just got to learn to get rid of those negatives in his game or at least minimize them so that Clifford develops more trust in him. And I think that we are getting getting to that with a little bit with Jeremy Lambert. Finishing at that sort of a level at the rim is obviously an, an impressive number for him. If we look at the advanced stat leaders, Kemba Walker led the team in PER at 21.3, which is a pretty small amount to lead a team in. Uh, True shooting Trevion Graham at 61.2, and Kemba had the highest usage at 29 and win shares at 8.1. Cody Zeller led the team in win shares per 48 at 0.157, an offensive box score plus minus. No surprise it's Kemba. Defensive, no surprise it's Zeller at 2.3, and overall, Kemba Walker had the highest box score plus minus and VORP. He is clearly the guy that leads this team, but don't be uh, don't be so quick to underestimate what Zeller means for this team. He was an absolute monster for them throughout the season, and it does go unnoticed by a few people in the fantasy community because his stats aren't necessarily gaudy, but he is a key part of what they do. And when he was out, they uh, they fell significantly. This team ran five lineups over 100 minutes, which is a, which is a decent amount. And you'll hear me talk about lineups and, and usage and, or not usage and the amount of minutes that these players get. And there are lineups like the, the Sixers and the Nets. They had two lineups over 100 minutes and none over 200. The Sixers, not the Sixers, the Hornets, Hornets most used lineup played six, 783 minutes. It is a massive, massive difference to get all your good players to play together. And it was successful. Batum, Kid Gilchrist, Walker, Marv Williams, and Cody Zeller. That starting five was a plus 6.8 points per 100 possessions in those 783 minutes. The problem is, as I highlighted when talking about the draft, is their backups aren't good. There's a big drop off and they need to really solidify the backup role at pretty much every position on this team. Their best lineup, which played over 100 minutes, was Batum, Walker, Marvin Williams, and Cody Zeller, but replacing Marco Bellinelli for Michael Kidd-Gilchrist get a little bit more shooting on the floor, and that gave them an extra one point per 100 possessions, up to 7.8 positive, as opposed to 6.8 for that regular starting lineup that they rolled out there. Out of their five um, lineups over 100 minutes, only one of those was negative, and that was Batum, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Kemba Walker, Marvin Williams, and Frank Kaminsky. And that was that time when, uh, or a lot of that time when Cody Zeller was out and Frank was playing at center. So while we loved the fantasy stats that Frank was putting up, in terms of his overall impact on the team, it was not great. Their most used four-man lineup, Batum, MKG, Walker, and Marv was a plus 2.5, while their best four-man uh, did include Frank, actually. Frank, Ballinelli, Kid Gilchrist, and Walker for a plus 11.8, which is obviously impressive. He was also in their best three-man lineup, Kaminsky, Walker, and Zeller, when he played at the four. I, I think I like him a little bit more at the four. That was a plus 14.1. 
while their best two-man lineup, unsurprisingly, was Walker and Zeller at plus 8.2, while the most used two-man was Batum and Walker at plus 2.7. But Walker and, and Zeller are, are the two probably the most important players in this team. Batum is in there. You know, I'm a big Batum fan. But Zeller is a really such an underrated player, an underrated part of this team that it doesn't always reflect in fantasy. So a lot of people might uh, disregard it, but he is uh, having him for a full season is, is key for this team being able to provide or get themselves back into the playoffs, I, I guess, is what I am uh, what I am trying to get at there. Let's get into these players now and uh, and start looking at them and, and breaking down some uh, value or how they are, how they panned out during the year. Kemba Walker was the number one fantasy player on this team, unsurprisingly, the 21st ranked player overall. He played in 79 games and played 35 minutes a game. Averaged 23 points, three triples, four boards, five and a half assists, 1.1 steals, and shot 44 from the field, 85 from the line, and 40% from three. And one of the big things that we used to always talk about with Kemba Walker is his field goal percentage is going to kill you. It's a punt field goal percentage, and that was the case. In 2013-14, he shot 39%. In 2014-15, he shot 39%, including 33 and 30% on threes. Last year, with the addition of Batum, he took his field goal percentage up to 43%, his three-point percentage up to 37 and his true shooting up to 55 And then he improved yet again with a 1% increase in his field goals to 44 um, and a 2% or 3% increase in his three-pointers up to 40 And that made his true shooting at 57%, well above average, making him a super, a really super efficient player for a point guard. And in the whole process, increasing his usage from 26 to 29. Um, so getting that bump in true shooting, getting that bump in usage was key for Kemba. The thing is that he, he didn't actually finish as high in the rankings as what he did last year, 21st last year, 25th this year. And mainly that's to do with the increased performances of other players. Because his numbers were all, like, he scored more points. He scored more threes. He had marginally less rebounds, but more assists. Higher field goal percentage, same free throws, but what he saw was his steal rate dropped from 1.6 to 1.1, and that impacted him as well. And that's probably part of the reason that he dropped those four spots. But everything else was uh, was much higher. But you see that steals, you know, I highlight triple ones as a category or as a combined category often because those low volume things, a small change in those numbers has a big, big influence. So him moving from 1.6 to 1.3 steals, which is, uh, so from 1.1 is a uh, half a steal per game drop, moved his Z score down from 1.3 to 0.3. So a full standard score drop. His rebounds went from 4.4 to 4, so a drop of 0.4 rebounds, and that moved from negative 0.48 to negative 6.1. So a 1.13, which is basically a 10% or you know, 12% of the drop that he cost you know, in steals, even though it was you know, half a rebound drop, half a steal drop. That That is an important differentiation to make of just how important those low-volume categories can be and how much that they do cause a swing in value for players. And we did see that, as I said, with Kemba Walker um, during during last season. That is part of the reason that he did drop down uh, a little bit. His head-to-head value and his rotisserie value is uh, is pretty similar as well. He's uh, ranked uh, 26th post-All-Star, 31st pre-All-Star. Nick Batum. I think a lot of people were disappointed with Batum this season. He still finished the season as the 37th ranked player. So I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's too bad of a, of a situation for him. 15 points, 1.8 triples, 6.3 boards, 5.9 assists, led the team in assists, one steal, 0.4 blocks, 40 and 86, and just 33% from three. So the 33% from three and the 40% from the, uh, 40% from the field is, is what did cause a bit of a drop in his numbers, but his overall, uh, his overall stats for the year, they weren't that different, or his ranking it wasn't that different to the year before. He saw his scoring actually go up, his rebounding and his assists stayed the same, his steals increased, but it was that drop in efficiency from 43 down to 40% that I guess some people were a little bit disappointed in. In his head-to-head ranks, he is a better rotisserie player than a head-to-head guy. He was 45th in pre-All-Star and 56th in post-All-Star, so he, he, he can be a little bit better in those, uh, in those other in those other numbers, uh, in the in the rotisserie type uh, type formats, just because of his solid contributions in many categories, he's obviously signed for a few more years at twenty million dollars a year, and I think he's going to be consistently providing those numbers for at least the next two to three years. I don't see much changing with Batum near the six boards, six assists, a steal, two triples, fifteen points. I think that's a realistic expectation, and hopefully he can get his shooting touch back. 
and get it to you know, even 42 43% and, and make him a solid early round selection with um, significantly high floor, maybe limited upside, but, but a pretty high floor for Batum. The team was 3.7 points per 100 possessions better off with him on the court. So that's good. I didn't mention Walker. He was 10.1 points, so a huge, huge discrepancy there. Not the best on the team. That went to Cody Zeller at 10.4, but you see how important Walker was and uh, conversely how horrendous the uh, the play of the backups were, which uh, mainly included Ramon Sessions and Brian Roberts at times. Kid Gilchrist. Finally, we got a full season out of, uh, out of Mick. He played 81 games. He played 29 minutes a game. Now, he's never going to be an offensive juggernaut, just the nine points. But he added seven rebounds as a small forward, one steal, one block, 48% from the field, 78% from the line, uh, 11% from three, which is what we would say far from good, especially considering he shot 43% on his seven games the year before. But the fact that he can talk about him being a bad shooter and that quote at the start about him re-engineering his shot, he doesn't he doesn't impact you in field goal percentage in fantasy. His last four seasons, 47, 47, 54, 48. There's no negative number there at all. These are all above average field goal percentage. And yes, they're on low volume, so they don't have a massive positive influence on your team, but he definitely doesn't hurt you in that category. Now, he doesn't score much. And he saw his, his scoring drop to uh, single digits for the first time in three seasons this year, just the nine points a game. But his ability to grab seven rebounds a game as a small forward you know, get you and, and get those defensive stats, which is something we had criticized Kid Gilchrist for a bit. Yes, elite perimeter defender, no no stats. But this year, he took his numbers up, which always hovered around the 0.6, 0.5 steals and blocks per game. He took them to one per game. So that that's a big, big change in what his uh, fantasy value can be. He was 108th for the season uh, this year. Kid Gilchrist and post All Star, he was 76th. So a, a significant improvement there, as he shot 52% and 83% from the line in that post All Star section and got his steals up to 1.3 per game. There's no reason why he can't be a one and a half steals a game guy and a 0.9 to one block a game guy with six to seven rebounds and perhaps get back to 10 points. But he'll need to play more than the 28 or 29 minutes a game year to get to those numbers. And I'm not 100% sure that Clifford will allow him to do that just with the way that he'll play Lamb and play Bellinelli in those lineups. And uh, and that does limit Kid Gilchrist at times. But towards the end of the year, he did start to play um, a little a little bit more. He had that weird patch in the middle where there were, there were some games where he was down to you know, low 20s in minutes, which was frustrating. But he got it back at the end and actually closed the season with two double-digit scoring games. And his defensive presence had been uh, pretty strong. So to me, he's a real strong mid-late round 14-team league guy. He's probably a guy you want to take in 12-teamers. But as I often stress is when I'm making that selection with my last two, three picks, I generally want high upside. And I'm not sure Kid Gilchrist can be that guy. But in one of those picks, if I'm just needing some really consistent defensive numbers, rebound steals blocks with no no hurting, no hurting me in efficiency, then Kid Gilchrist is going to do that. You just know he's not going to give you points. He's not going to give you threes. He's not going to give you assists. But he will provide good percentages, good defensive numbers without blowing you away. But some but some solid numbers there at that back half of the season and the back half of drafts. 10-team leagues, I reckon you'd probably leave him. But 12s, I can definitely see the value in Kid Gilchrist. Uh, 2.5 as his on-off number for the season as well. Um, Marv, Marv Williams. Breakout year the year before, no doubt about that. Shit our start to 2016-17, absolutely horrendous, but yeah, finished the year strongly. He was the 75th ranked player over the course of the season, played 76 games, 30 minutes a game, 11 points, 1.6 triples, 6.5 boards, 1.5 assists, 0.8 steals, 0.7 blocks, 42 and 87, shooting 35% from three. Post All-Star, though, is where he was really strong. He got himself into the top 50, playing 34 minutes a game, 11.5 points, 8.5 boards. Still the same steal and a block, but took his field goal percentage up, which really brought it home to me. So we saw him play more minutes this year than last year. And in the end, a relatively similar season, but it was really bogged down by the fact that he couldn't hit a shot for the first two, three months of the year. He saw his three-point percentage drop from 40% to 35, and his field goal percentage drop from 45 to 42. But as I just mentioned, in that second half of the year, he got those percentages back to what we saw from him. 
I still think that Frank Kaminsky probably is a better power forward than than center at times, but I'm not I'm not sold on that. Yeah, Kaminsky struggled at center, he struggles at, at power forward, but with the way that Marvin Williams is playing, I reckon you might be able to get one more year out of Marv at this sort of a level. He is 30 years of age already, so a, a maybe he can't bounce back to being that same shooter, which was completely out of nowhere that that came for him last year anyway, as with the blocks. And he struggled with the blocks at the start of the year. But again, post-All-Star, got himself back up to one block a game when previously he'd been just a half a block a game guy throughout the, the rest of his career. And that's the way it started last season. But you know, turned it around towards the end of the year. Can he be that guy that you... I don't think you want to take him inside the top 50. I don't think that would be a smart move at all. And his head-to-head rank went from 145 pre to 63 post. So not quite as good head-to-head versus uh, rotisserie numbers. And as I said, he was 50th in, in rotisserie in that rotisserie overall value post All-Star. But he's a guy that I would be happy taking for rebounding steals and blocks much like I would kid Gilchrist towards the end of a draft, but you get more offensive value out of Marv and you get the three-pointers, which pushes him, I believe, ahead of a kid Gilchrist heading into next season. And I expect another 29 to 30-minute season with a block a game, a steal a game, one-and-a-half threes a game, 14 points, seven-ish rebounds. And that, again, has solid value without having significant upside, which you have to, you know, I guess... Weigh that against what you've done with the rest of your team. Have you gone all upside everywhere? Do you need some solid value? And Marvin can uh, can produce that. Horrendous for the start of the season. Really strong at the end. And I expect a relatively strong season from him next season without you know, even sniffing that top 50 zone. He was... The team was 1.9 points better off with him on the bench, so that is, I guess, level of concern, especially when Kaminsky was a positive one. And he is a guy that I, I think could challenge Marv for minutes, especially if he does start to struggle in his age 31 season, which he'll be next season. So that does um, that does put an element of doubt on Marv, but that's why you'd only take him with one of those last couple of picks. And if I had to pick between Marv and Frank with one of those last couple of picks, I'd probably take Kaminsky just because... What's your trajectory? Does Kaminsky push forward and Marv push backwards? That's probably the more realistic scenario. It might not happen, but if you're talking about realism, is Marvin Williams going to improve or, or decline? The odds are decline. Is Frank going to improve or decline? The odds are improve. If they're around that same value, then you take the guy with the upwards arrow rather than the guy with the downwards arrow. But Marvin still is going to have a, a fairly solid... Um, level of consistency just without that level of upside, I, I believe. Um, yeah, some some decent advanced numbers for him, just bang on average, you know, average win share numbers, average box score plus minus, basically just a an average type of player, which there's nothing wrong with being a, an average type of player, obviously, and a guy that can contribute in in, uh, in fantasy stuff as well, which which he was able to do. I also wouldn't rule out the Hornets playing some Kid Gilchrist at the four lineups. I think that could work quite well. And that could be an impact for Marvin Wins. But they need to find another wing. They need to have Jeremy Lamb take that next step up to push Batum up to the three. They need to see if they could find a wing in the uh, in free agency. Do they look at a guy like a Donovan Mitchell at pick 11 to bring another wing in there to enable Kid Gilchrist to push up to the four, for Batum to push up to the three, and for someone else to play there at the two instead of um, instead of Ballinelli, instead of um, uh, instead of Lamb, if that's the direction they don't want to go, and and that will impact Marvin Williams as well. So that that does have a level of concern if that's the direction they want to go, and we will see more of that in the draft in free agency. But I can't imagine a guy like Mitchell coming in, being drafted, and they just go bang. All right, man, you're starting. Here's your 26 minutes as your starting shooting guard and having that sort of an impact, especially on a team like the Hornets with Steve Clifford. I just don't see that being the case. More likely to see Lamb take a step forward and gain that trust rather than a rookie coming in like Mitchell and being able to do that. Let's get on to Cody Zeller now because I think he's one of the more intriguing guys. He only played 62 games for the year, had that injury, which was a like a thigh bruise, which kept him out for such a long period of time, played only 28 minutes a game, which I feel is too low. 10.5 points, 6.5 boards, a steal, a block, 57 and 67% uh, from the field and from the line, respectively. 
And he, he finished the season uh, as a, where was he ranked? As the 126th ranked player in head-to-head value, 93rd pre, 88th post All-Star, and he led the team in on-off at a positive 10.4, which is obviously a, a pretty impressive number for a guy like Cody Zeller. His value to this team is much higher than what his fantasy stats are, but he has got much, he's got big room to grow. What's wrong with my words? He has got room to grow with, uh, with his value for next season, and I'll tell you where that comes from. The fact that for some reason, and this happened to a number of players, and I don't know why, they just had inexplicable drop-offs in their free-throw shooting. And let's let's just get this intact. In you can talk about free-throw shooting in the NBA. This was the most the successful free-throw shooting season in the NBA in recent, in recent times. I can't remember exactly how far back it goes, but the free-throw percentage was well up in the NBA as an overall. I think it was the best number they'd had in 10 years, but don't quote me on that. Um, so overall, free throw percentage improved, but guys like Pau Gasol saw massive drop-offs. Just talked about it in the Pelican sh- show. Drew Holiday suffered like you know, 12% dip in his free throw percentage. Cody Zeller, who'd shot in his first three seasons, 73, 77, and 75, went to 68%, you know, 7% dip. And that's still while he increased his true shooting from 59 to 60 because he shot 57 from the field. Just real weirdness to me that he was... And if he had got that extra you know, 8% on there, then maybe he's scoring an extra you know, one point a game and goes from 10 points to 11 points. And that takes him to being a, a pretty comfortable top 100 guy. His value comes from that efficiency, from those defensive numbers, and from his rebounding in fantasy. You know, seven boards, a steal, a block, the 57%. If he gets the 77, 77% free throws back, then he becomes an average or a a neutral in that category as well and helps him be a solid guy. But much like so many guys on this team, Kid Gilchrist, Marv Williams, where's the upside? There's none. You'd even say it with Kemba and Batum, like where is their upside? Yes, Batum's got the ability to improve with his field goal percentage. Zeller can improve his free throw percentage. Marv can keep his efficiency back from that second half stuff and keep that going. But it's not like massive room for growth for these guys. Zeller's never going to be a top 40 guy. He's a low turnover player, so if that's what you dig, then fine. But he's never going to come out there and put up an 18-9 and season with two blocks a game. He's not going to develop into Brook Lopez and start hitting threes, although I do believe he can hit some threes to a limited degree. But he's not going to come out and start banging into a game like Lopez did. He's going to be a solid player who is an underrated overall contributor in fantasy and helps you with those field goal percentage, rebounds, and the defensive numbers. And I think he's got a real room to grow for next season. His per 36 numbers, 13.5 and 8.5, and 1.2 steals, 1.3 blocks. He won't play 36, but I think he needs 32 minutes a night. He is that important to this team. And the fact that he played 28 was not ideal. But we look at, again, what did he do once he actually got fit and healthy at the end of the season? He played 30 minutes a game. So that that's more going to where it needs to be. I don't think that Kaminsky is a better player than him. I don't think that Kaminsky will, will you know overtake his role. I don't think them drafting Zach Collins is going to impact Zala. We look at Zala and go, oh, goofy white guy who doesn't put up big fantasy numbers. But he is ultra important to what this team does, and they were shit without him. They were, they were absolutely horrible, and it cost him missing 20 games cost them the playoffs. I don't think... I don't, well, maybe you could, you, you can argue, people can argue anything, but I don't think you can really argue that the fact, the reason they missed the playoffs was the absence of Cody Zeller. His positioning, his box outs, his defense, his crushing screen setting, his efficiency, um, is, is key to, to making winning basketball plays, and he is going to need to play more minutes. Uh, next season, and uh, hopefully he does, and he can push himself and, I guess, solidify himself as a top 100 guy. I think he is a top 100 guy anyway, but I reckon he can maybe push to a top 80, maybe, maybe at best a top 75, but that might be that might be pushing it. But I think he can be a top 80 guy next season, especially if those minutes go up. But he was, uh, he was super impressive in the times that he played, really, really good defensively. And I wouldn't be worried about a guy like Zach Collins coming in and taking his uh, his role off him. He's still only 24, Cody Zeller, so he's not like he's a you know, 27 year old like a Gorgie Jeng, who's uh, who's coming into the you know, first season of the of their new deal. He's still only 24, so he's got his peak ahead of him. And, and I'm a big Cody Zeller fan from a basketball point of view. I just don't see the elite fantasy upside from him, and that's that's just the way that some uh, some players go. 
I already said that he was a team leading plus 10.4, which is a pretty massive. We talked, you know, Anthony Davis was less than that on the Pelicans, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, return Cody Zellers more valuable than Anthony Davis, but it gives you some idea of just how important he was to this team. Frank, the tank, Kaminsky. 75 games for Frank, 26 minutes, 11.7 points. He hit one and a half three, a disappointing four and a half rebounds. Two assists, 0.7 steals, half a block, 40% from the field, 76% from the line, and 33% from three for a true shooting of just 50% for Kaminsky. Was it an improvement on his rookie season? Of course it was. He played five extra minutes, and he took his per 36 scoring up from 13 to 16. He hit more threes per 36. He had an extra 50%. He had a 50% rise in his assist rate from two to three, more steals, but what he did do was we saw his rebounding rate drop. He saw his efficiency drop from the field from 41 to 40%. And his three-point percentage dropped from 34 to 33. And it cost an overall true shooting drop from 51 to 50, which is not the way you want a rookie to sophomore transition to go. You want them to take their true shooting up 4%, 5%, um, yeah, increase some of that other stuff. So the fact that his rebounding dropped, his block rate dropped while he was playing more minutes at center than what he did in his rookie season is a little bit concerning, but offensively, he definitely took that step up, became more assertive, became more reliable, and had a stretch during the season where he was a a must-own guy from a fantasy point of view because of those numbers he was putting up. The team was one point per 100 possessions better off with him on the court versus on the bench, so that's a positive, but overall, his numbers, 198th ranked pre-All-Star, 131st post-All-Star, it's not overly not overly exciting. And that post-All-Star section, he averaged 14 points, two threes, but the 4.4 rebounds, the lack of blocks, the low field goal percentage, he's providing guard numbers, but without the assists and steals, and that's what limits him. He's a big man, and you know, I don't care if my big man doesn't necessarily block shots or my big man hits threes or whatever it is, but he's giving a profile of a guard. You know, 14 points, two threes, four rebounds, 41% and 77. Like That's the profile of a guard. But then you have two and a half assists, you have 0.4 steals, and they're the other things that normally come along with that. So not only is he lacking in the big man numbers, but then he lacks in the small man numbers as well. And that is a concern. Now, he is a prime candidate in his third season to take that efficiency and jump it by the six true shooting percentage points and become a 56 true shooting guy, a 46 guy from the field, a 37 guy from three. Like he could very, very easily do that. And that bumps him to maybe being a 16 point scorer in 26 minutes a night. But he needs the blocks. He needs the rebounds to come in to really start to to get his value up. I would have no issue, as I said earlier, taking him with one of the last picks in the draft and hoping that maybe they find him some more minutes there over Marvin Williams and that those improvements do come and he starts becoming a real offensive threat and and works a little bit on those rebounding stuff. But the the difference in play between him and Zeller at center was stark and it did cost the Hornets quite significantly during the season. So I do think there is still some hope for Frank. He showed enough growth in certain areas, but the regressions in others kept him back. But he was he was okay during the season. Definitely not a massive negative in, say, defensive box score plus minus, but not a positive, not a positive in his overall box score plus minus. And the more important thing was just the trust in him on offense, the higher usage, the more shots, the higher scoring, the more threes, all that sort of stuff. But obviously, his efficiency needs to take a big step forward as he heads into season three, where he'll be 24 years of age, really should start to develop into a a key piece, but it won't be starting over Zeller. It could be starting over Marv if Marv has an early early season falter like he did uh, during this uh, latest campaign. Marco Bellinelli was disappointing in Sacramento, pretty much everyone is, came across in exchange for pick 22. He played 74 games at 24 minutes a game, 10.5 points, 1.5 threes, yeah, very similar to Kaminsky numbers, 2.5 rebounds, 2 assists, 0.6 steals, 0.1 blocks, 43 from the field and 89 from the line and shot 36% from three. Now, he was really disappointing in Sacramento the year before. He took his field goal percentage from 39 up to 43 and his three-pointers from 31 to 36, which is more in line with career numbers. Got his true shooting from 50 back to 57 as well and was... Yeah, a really solid source of threes for the majority of the season. He just does absolutely nothing else, and he you just don't ever think that he will be. If you want some threes and some scoring on a weekend stream setting in a, in a head-to-head situation, add him. 
you know, you've got a real chance of him knocking in five threes over two games and giving you 25 points. But he gives you nothing else. And, you know, the consistency is not always there for Ballinelli. And there is a chance that, that Jeremy Lamb maybe jumps ahead of him. Again, he is an age 30 player. And could he, for a guy that is limited athletically anyway, does that impact his ability to stay on the court as he, as he starts to get toasted more defensively? They'll be harder to get more toasted than what he was at times this season. It's all going to depend on the, uh, I guess the, the ascendancy of Lamb, whether he can move forward ahead of a guy like Ballinelli this year. He's a guy that you look at more in your 20-team leagues, 18-team leagues, and stream in, as I said earlier, when you're just desperate for some of those three-pointers that he can provide. But he just, there's just very little, again, as is the theme with this team, there's just very little upside in what Ballinelli can do. You don't ever see him becoming a guy that's going to start getting bunches of steals or bunches of assists or even being a high-volume scorer, even though he's hitting those threes. He's not a high, uh, not a high usage guy. He's a below-average usage, in fact, at just 19% from this for the season. So he's never going to be this high-volume player, and that obviously limits his upside there. Speaking of Jeremy Lamb, he played 62 games, 18 minutes a game. Average 9.7 points, 0.73s, four boards, really, really strong rebounder, Jeremy Lamb. Yeah, really strong. And that's something that we, uh, we often, I guess, not ignore about him, but, but don't realize. But he had multiple, you know, big rebounding games during the season. One point, uh, oh, sorry, that's his post all star. 1.2 assist and then half a steal, half a block, 46% from the field, 85 from the line. Um, and weirdly, just 28% from three for a true shooting of 55%. Post All-Star, it was very similar, 10 and four with uh, you know, half a steal, half a block, 49 and 94 with his percentages. So super efficient, but still wasn't able to hit his threes, considering that you know, when he came into the league, he was considered a, uh, a, a three-point shooter, and that just hasn't, hasn't been the case for him. 31% last year and 28% this year from three, while being you know, relatively solid with his actual field goal percentage as highlighted by that uh, 70% at the rim that he was able to shoot. Talk about his uh, rebounding prowess. He had a game back in November where he started, I think in place of Nick Batum, where he had 18 points and 17 rebounds and shot 53% from the field. The next game, he went 21-9 and in 23 minutes off the bench. But then he started to lose faith of Clifford. He went back to the bench and played 13 minutes and had 4-1. and and it was just very, very up and down in terms of what he did. But when he started, he saw a couple of starts there in March, 31 minutes, 26, 4, and 2. 29 minutes, 8, 7, and 2. Like, they're, they're solid games. Finished the season with three strong performances as well, 17 and 5, 12 and 4, 21 and 5, with two steals. I wouldn't be shocked to see Jeremy Lamb take a significant step forward this season. Um, it is going to be his uh, his fourth season. Sorry, his fifth season in the NBA. I wouldn't be shocked to see him take a step forward and uh, and supplant Marco Bellinelli. He's 24 years of age. He had an above-average PR. He's a strong rebounder. And if we talk about players on this team having limited upside, I think Lamb's got a little bit of upside. We've seen the flashes. You know, 21 and 17 is not a realistic expectation, but he can do it. He can be a strong rebounder. He can get steals in decent amounts. He can score, and he can do it efficiently. And these are things that, that you know, I wouldn't have... If I'm probably a 14-team league, I would definitely look to take a Jeremy Lamb later on. Now, a lot depends on what happens in free agency and how we see things play out over the preseason and training camp as to how they're going to use him. But as I said earlier, you know, pushing a Michael Kidd-Gilchrist to the four and Batum to the three and getting Lamb in there, if they develop that confidence in him, you know, that he could become a sneaky option at a top 100 player. It's very minimal. It's very, very low in terms of percentages. But it's a possibility if that's the route they go, if he develops, and if Steve Clifford demonstrates the uh, required level of confidence in him, which we haven't seen so far. But I do have some level of faith in Jeremy Lamb. It's just that consistency and consistency in trust has been a a real issue for Lamb, and that has uh, really hijacked his development and his career. And banking on it is not a good idea. But there is a possibility, so it's something to be... So if we see at the start of the season that Lamb starts playing 28 minutes a night and performing well, then I'd be like, you know what? I'm all for this. Let's grab it and see where it goes because it, it's not completely out of character. But let's be be willing to say that, hey, maybe it doesn't last and maybe 
maybe shit starts hitting the fan and, and Clifford starts getting annoyed and Ballinelli comes back in and Batum slides and Marvin Williams pushes up. But there are there are some unknowns with the way that lineup works. But um yeah, that that, that is a change that Clifford could look to make depending on uh, on how things go during the year. Ramon Sessions played just the 50 games. He had that knee injury at the end of the year that cost him majority of the time there. 16 minutes a game, 6 points, 2.6 assists. He's never a big three-point shooter. He hit just 0.4, half a steal, 38 and 77. And as I said, he has got that $6 million player option. He was a team worst, negative 6.2 with his on-off numbers. He provided absolutely nothing. You go from a backup point guard the year before in Jeremy Lin, who was 12-team valuable for most of the year, to Ramon Sessions, that's also a big reason why this team dropped so far. Is just that level of the play of the backup point guard was horrendous in comparison to what we saw the year before with Lynn, which was uh, which was super valuable. Sessions was not. They need a backup point. Whether they can get one, especially if Sessions opts in, I don't know whether they can get one that's any better. No, they could get someone better than him, but whether they can afford it at this point because he is not good and if they're stuck with another seasons of season of sessions they are going to be in a in a fair degree of trouble he offers very little fantasy wise he'd need a Kemba Walker injury and even then he'd be a, a back-end guy who who offers you know, assists and that's probably about it and that can be valuable in itself we know that but he offers very little outside of the uh outside of assists from a from a fantasy point of view Miles Plumlee, yeah, yuck. He uh, came across in a trade mid-season from Milwaukee. Ended up playing forty-five games for the season, just eight in Charlotte. Um, no, sorry, sorry, thirteen in Charlotte. He was, um, he was not, he was not good. I think that's uh, that's a fair way of putting it. Played thirteen minutes a game. 1.9 points, 3.2 rebounds, and he should be you know, pushed down as uh, the third third string center and they bring in a guy like Zach Collins and push him out of the rotation. He's still got three more years left on this horrendous, horrendous deal. Remember they did have Roy Hibbert to start the year and Spencer Hawes and both of those guys moved to acquire Plumley for whatever reason. They they must like him. I don't know why he is really bad. I, I don't yeah, I, I don't understand the infatuation. I like Mason Plumley. I don't understand the infatu- infatuation with uh with Miles Plumley. He just offers uh really nothing at all in uh, in my experience from watching him play he had a PR of 9 while he was in Charlotte a really poor offensive um advanced stats good defensive box score plus minus but i think that you know getting a guy like Collins in there and letting him maybe work for a year behind Plumley and then Plumley is just going to find himself in an Omar Ashik situation where he's paid 10 million dollars to not play and i think that's uh that's probably the most realistic expectation of him he will struggle to crack the top 300 ever again in his NBA career. So 20-team league, dynasties, I wouldn't worry about it. 30-teamers, you probably still want to hold and you can help a little bit there, but not to a huge degree. And his upside is uh, is fairly limited. You know, their, their number one and two options at center should be Kaminsky or should be Zeller and Kaminsky and potentially uh, Collins. So Plumlee is going to be uh, by quite limited, I believe, as we move forward. Brian Roberts, 41 games, 10 minutes a game, 3.5 points, 1.3 assists. He's an unrestricted free agent, 38% from the field, 85% from the line, and 39% from three. Not sure that he comes back. I would much rather guarantee Briante Weber's contract and let him play as the third-string point guard. Roberts has just bounced around the league over the last couple of seasons and offers offers us very little uh, in terms of any sort of excitement level. Um, yeah, he just, uh, he, he's just, he's just crap. Basically, he's a player that yeah, maybe sneaks inside the top 400. That's probably about, about it for, uh, big Brian. As for Weber, he played just the 20, 20 games this season. Um, signed for Golden State. They let him go. I thought they should have kept him. I like I like Bionte Weber. He played 13 games for the uh, for the Hornets. As I said some of, he played some games with um with Golden State as well. He um he didn't do a huge amount though to encourage his uh, his NBA career in Charlotte. 12 minutes a game. He averaged 3.8 points 
0.7 steals in 12 minutes, which is really where his bread is buttered, and 1.2 assists. He's a, a steals specialist. If he's forced into a 20-minute-a-game guy, you'd want to stream him just to get a chance at two steals a game, which is what he can do. He just doesn't do much more than that. 14% shooting from three in Charlotte, 44% from the field. They're obviously not great numbers, and he's not a good free-throw shooter either. But he does have that steals upside, so that's why you would keep an eye on him in those deeper leagues just for the ability, if he found himself with you know, Roberts and maybe Sessions gone, maybe they have the faith in him to play him at 17 minutes, be that defensive pest that Kemba Walker can't be, and get 1.5 steals in 20 minutes, and you know only give two assists and only give six points, but those steals they can be valuable for those deeper formats, which is one of those things that it does make it hard to get those numbers. Now, on-off, he was terrible, minus 12.1 for this team. So that's obviously not a great indication of um, of where his value is going to lie. Trevion Graham played 27 games in his first season, seven minutes a game, an undrafted player, 2.1 points, 0.8 rebounds, no defensive numbers, efficient. 60% from three, 48% from the field, true shooting of 61. How much of that is fluke? I'd say nearly all of it. I wouldn't have much in terms of hope for Trivion. I think they do pick up his team option. He's 23. They started him a couple of games during the season when Batum was out. Uh, sorry, he started one game uh, during the season. Had some uh, strong net rating for the year, a plus 11 net rating as well. So he showed some stuff, especially with his defensive work, which was uh, which was pretty good for this team. But a long way to go for Trevion, and, and for him to ever become a, a fantasy option, it's going to take a, a long way. He is 23 years of age already, so there's not much uh, hope in growth. He was a team worst minus 13.3 as well in terms of his on-off number. So while his net rating was great, his on-off was horrible at a negative 13.8. And nothing really stands out about his game as being something where you look at it and go, you know what, there's a little bit of hope here. From, for fantasy, you know, low defensive numbers, no assists, low threes. Well, he hits the threes, obviously, at a high rate, but yeah, n- nothing for, that I'm excited about. Christ- Christian Wood, 13 games, eight minutes a game, two and a half points, two and a half rebounds, half a block, 52 and 73. So those numbers, you look at them and go, you know what, shit, these numbers are really, really good in eight minutes. You look at, you look at, at this guy here that plays you know, 36 minutes a game, you're talking about a, a 10 and 10 sort of a player with two blocks, one steal, 52 and 73. That cracks the top 150. The problem is with Christian Wood is will he ever be able to play those minutes? And the answer is almost a categorical no. I don't know whether they bring him back. And if they don't, I don't think any team picks him up. He has got off the court issues, which was part of the reason why the Sixers let him go. Your concentration, maturity problems. He's still got the raw ability and I still do have some level of belief in him, but it's real, real low. And you'd have to be in a league where you can just afford to sit someone on the bench and not have anything happen for a year or so. I think that you're, um, I think you're going to see him end up playing over in Europe or, uh, you're probably, probably Europe next season or maybe the D-League. And he might come and sign a couple of 10 days at the end of the year, but I wouldn't have uh, too much hope in Christian Wood. And I thought there was a good opportunity for him in Charlotte, but he was never able to do that. So that's two teams, and that uh, yeah, that does eliminate the majority of my faith in him. The last player on this team is a player that I can't believe is still getting around in the NBA, and that is John O'Brien, a player who was one of Jason Kidd's yeah, great decisions to start him for so many games during his rookie season. He was terrible. He played four games in his time in Charlotte. Yeah, nothing too exciting. They signed him when they had those injuries to Miles Plumley and to Cody Zeller, and Frank Kaminsky was their only center. He played eight and a half minutes in those four games, averaged four and a half points, which is probably higher than what you'd anticipate in that sort of a time frame, and two rebounds. But honestly, he is just bad. There's nothing uh, redeeming about his value moving forward. Yeah, good, solid True shooting, good solid percentages, decent scoring rate, but but he's bad. He's a bad defender, and I, I don't really see him being or finding himself on a team as we head into next season, and that's uh, it's not going to give you much fantasy value. And this is why this team had all these strong lineups with their starters, and the bench was horrendous. You know, Trivion Graham, Brian Roberts, Miles Plumley, Bruante Weber, Johnny O'Brien, Ramon Sessions, Christian Wood. Like These are all bad, bad options, and they had to play more minutes than they would have liked. And then you don't have you know, the high... You know, while Kemba and Cody and Batum and that played well... They didn't. They're not high enough stars to drag those guys forward, and that's that's where the concern is. Like, where is the growth for this team? As as I've highlighted uh, many times during this show, questions. 
Jordan, actually, I didn't mention this earlier. They don't have any stash options of players coming across either. Jordan says, Cody Zeller was really useful in nine cat when he played. Does he still have value if they Hornets draft a big like Zach Collins? Yes. Um, I think I covered that earlier on. I'm a big fan of, of Cody. And I think that while they might draft a guy like Zach Collins, as I, I mentioned earlier, or all the time, actually, we overvalue the, the use of rookies and how much impact they're going to have. Half of them turn out shithouse. Some of them turn into decent role players. We know what we've got in Zeller. Maybe he's not a high upside guy, but he can actually be better than what he was this year, and he is a he is a key to winning basketball games for this team. So, as I said earlier, nine, even A-Cat, he's a top 100 guy. Nine-Cat, the low turnovers do help him as well, but he can be a valuable guy with the rebounding steals, blocks, field goal percentage, and hopefully the re-bump up in his free throw percentage. Kyle Norb, how many times will you talk about how no one thinks Batum is good, even though he's good? I didn't talk about it once, Kyle, probably because I saw that question in advance, but I will talk about it now that you've mentioned it. And that's not exactly what I mean when I talk about it, when I say no one thinks Batum is good. What I say is that when he has a game or he has a slump where he shoots 35% for three games, people are like, oh, I've got to drop him, drop him, have to drop Nick Batum. He's useless, he's terrible, and they turn on him so quickly. It's not that people don't think he's good because he'll go through and have these big runs and people go, that, that's great, look at his numbers. But as soon as he has a downturn in his performance, that is when you harass the shit out of his owner and you buy him low or you watch the waiver wire because people will drop him. If he has a two-week stretch of averaging 11 points on 38% shooting or 34% shooting and a couple of one of nine games, he'll get dropped by someone in some league listening to this podcast. He will get dropped. And that's when you can get him for low because it's not like they don't think he's good. They just turn off him. There is just zero faith and zero confidence in Batum. For what reason? I have absolutely no idea. No, that's not true. It's because he played one year with a busted wrist while he was divorcing his missus and it bothered his play for that entire year in Portland. One year, every other year, as consistent as anything, consistently putting up those good fantasy numbers. And that's uh, that's what happens. Kyle also says, in all seriousness, this team is stuck in the middle, not super fantasy-friendly. Does Kaminsky emerge next season or just a rotation guy? I covered that as well, but you're right. They're stuck in the middle. They're not super fantasy-friendly. I don't have massive faith in Kaminsky. I think if there's anything, he's going to take the role off of Marvin Williams if that happens, but there are other directions to go. I think he'll be stuck as a 27-ish, 26-minute-a-game guy that can be useful at times but won't be a consistent must-own player. And Kerry Reynolds says, who would provide us the most help in the draft? I do, do think they need to go with a with a backup big like a Zach Collins or a backup wing player um, like a Donovan Mitchell. If they could get a point guard, great. I just don't necessarily see one falling to him at, at that spot. So that, that's the way that I think that they should uh, go. If they, for some reason, get Malik Monk falling to them, which that would be awesome. I don't see that happening. Or Frank Nilakina, if he falls, you go that direction as well. But I think they'll be looking at a guy like a Zach Collins with their pick at pick 11 in this upcoming NBA draft. All right, that uh, that does it for today's second show, the Charlotte Hornets Season in Review podcast. Tomorrow, we'll be back with, who are we doing tomorrow? The Detroit Pistons is tomorrow's show, so make sure you are listening to that one, download it, and stay subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or tune in to make sure that you never miss an episode. And if you do enjoy the podcast, if you could leave a review on iTunes, rate the show five stars, it is always super helpful. Follow me on all social media at redrock underscore b-ball. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya. Chris Matthews.